0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. How you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? Thanks for asking. I'm doing fine. I just flew into tank
1: anyway, sorry. <laughs> for those of you who don't get that reference, that is a classic Bud Light commercial uh off the how you how you doing guys from New Jersey from back like 90s, early 2000. I have it saved on YouTube. It's awesome commercial, look it up. But that's what that is i just anytime i hear how you do and i just can't resist going into that whole uh, that whole response i'll do put it i'll put it i'll put a link in the show notes for it let's put it that way and then you can appreciate it that much more
0: i was gonna say am i hearing an early pick in the episode uh yeah i might do it maybe
1: i'll do that as a pick, and th- the both of them actually
0: okay. we could just do the episode backwards so now at this point we're gonna do we picks, do picks so right um uh, <laughs> Although in a way,
2: we are just doing an episode where we talk about picks. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topenddevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had, with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right, so whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world, or whatever, I I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So today, as we're approaching the end of 2021,
0: I wanted to talk about some of the things we're interested in and we're we're following as we go into 2022, see which technologies uh, we have our eyes on going into the next year. So... Yeah, it's basically going to be an episode of picks where we talk about things that we like and that are more definitely programming related uh, than our other picks. So with that, let's get started talking. Um, Steve, the the technology I'm most interested in going into the next year is Vite and the Vite ecosystem. Uh, seems like especially since Vite uh, opened up, being able to use other frameworks, being able to use other front-end libraries, being able to integrate with the rest of the JavaScript ecosystem outside of Vue, it's just been growing at a tremendous pace. And I am very excited to see where it goes in 2022. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. I really want to uh,
1: try playing with some existing projects and just swapping out Webpack for, for Vite, because uh, everything I hear about it is just you know minimal configuration, incredible speed, uh, and uh, a great tool all around. So, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to playing it, playing with it, excuse me.
0: Yeah. I When, the, when Evan, you announced Vite originally, uh, Vite 1.0, and how it was going to be this amazing experience for working with Vue, that sounded really exciting in and of itself. I thought we were seeing the next direction that Vue was going to go, which is how it turns out to be, especially with the new uh, Create Vue template Uh, where you can just run npm init view at 3, at 2, at latest, at whatever version you want. And it'll spin up a Vite instance for you rather than using the Vue CLI as the recommended way to create a new application. Uh, And that's really cool. But being able to do the same type of thing where you can just spin up a Vite application using React, using Svelte, using Lit, using Solid, using whatever tooling you want is really amazing. Um, And there's so many options for pre-built templates if you go to the awesome V page on GitHub. Just so many options in Vue, in React, and I I threw in a template in Elm. Um, I'm just really excited for the direction this is going, that we can have this more universal experience of this is the tool to use. And it's actually really, really good not just better than what came before. I feel like this is like a solid technology that's going to be around for a while and we're not going to end up complaining about it at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, boy, there is a lot of neat stuff out here, isn't there?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I will also acknowledge, I was not in front-end development when Gulp came around or when Webpack oh, was boy. brand new. So I don't know personally how it felt To go from what was before to what came then. Um, But I feel like the difference between Webpack and Vite is more than gulp to Webpack, for example, or nothing to gulp. Uh, I feel like it really is a full developer experience, not just a tool for bundling code to deliver in the browser. Does that sound accurate?
1: Yeah, I mean it has to do with speed. I mean it used and roll up for the bundling. So, you know, just to go back in your history, yeah, you're forgetting grunt. Uh, oh, yeah. So Grunt was the first uh, task runner type of tool that I can remember using. And I remember just some monster configs uh, that you had to write to do that. And then you got Gulp. When Gulp took more of the uh, pipeline approach to running tasks where, you know, here's a task and, and okay, here's my output from that. Now I'm going to pass it to the next task and, and the next task and so on. Um, I remember working on some Angular JS applications, uh, with Form.io that we're using is either grunt or gulp. I can't remember, you know, to fire everything up and do all your bundling and stuff. So yeah, things have certainly come a long way, but you know, the, the big, I think the big attraction, I think there's two main attractions that I've seen with Vite just from, uh, listening to people talk about it or reading about as is one is the speed, uh, and the fact that you're using, uh, existing capabilities instead of having to do it you don't have to reinvent the wheel you know because you're using the native uh, modules within a browser and then two um, is the configuration Um, webpack configs i think are notorious for being rather large Uh, they can be rather large and uh, the comment that i hear quite a bit and you've mentioned it as well lindsay is that configuration is minimal. I mean, you can add more if you want, but to get it to work out of the box, it's it's really pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised at how straightforward it was to configure. Um, As listeners know, I've been experimenting more and more with Elm, and that's what I work with at work. Uh, And getting Elm integrated into a Vite application is as easy as bringing in a plugin and adding it to your list of plugins. There's nothing else to do. Um, And that was very much not the case in Webpack. And I would imagine other uh, special file formats, other frameworks had the same problem where getting it configured in Webpack is just a little bit more work. It's a little bit more verbose, but with Vite, it's just, you plug it in. There you go, congratulations. You can use whatever you want now. And the same goes for Vue and React as well.
1: So for the plugins, is it just a matter of uh, there's like a config file, and you say, okay, use this plugin, incorporate it, and and it pulls it in.
0: Yeah. Um, don't remember the name of the plugin off the top of my head. I think it's vpluginelm in this case. Uh, and you just what about record offhand? that.
1: What was that? I, what about offhand? I always check both places.
0: Oh, yeah, got to check both. Um,
1: top of my head and offhand.
0: I believe it is vpluginelm. That would make sense to me. And... In your config file, you just import, I I declare it as import Elm plugin from whatever the plugin name is. And then in your Vite config, there is uh, an array that you can set called plugins. And that's where you would put like the view compiler. So if you're using a view template, that's where you'll find view. And you just do the same thing. You uh, you invoke Elm plugin as a function. It returns all of the configuration into the Vite uh, plugin array. And you're done. At that point, you can import Elm files just like you can JavaScript files and Vue files and interact with them directly rather than having to compile the Elm to JavaScript first and then import the JavaScript. So it just removes that extra pain step of having to run two compilers at once.
1: Yeah. So it looks like according to the VEAT plugin API documentation, they just extend rollup plugin interface. And it just add some, it's basically a wrapper is what it looks like. They yeah. add some some extra Vite-specific options.
0: Yeah, and I think they specify in there, if you're writing a plugin for Vite and you don't use any of the VEAT, uh APIs, you should probably just call it a roll-up plugin mm-hmm. because it's compatible with both. But if you use anything Vite-specific, they ask you to name it as a VEAT plugin instead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I just, I'm just so excited about Vite. Um, I saw on Twitter, the syntax people, uh, Wes and Scott, were talking like, What are your predictions for 2022? And one of mine was, Create React App migrates to using Vite instead of Webpack. (laughs) Because I think Vite's going to take over. Uh, I think it's going to be the way that developers want to work with at least the front-end code. I don't think it handles back-end yet. But at least for working in front-end environments, Vite is amazing. And if you haven't tried it yet, I definitely recommend it.
1: Now, from a Vue standpoint, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Vite only work with Vue 3?
0: Uh, no. Viet or is there a bridge? Okay.
1: For some reason, I thought there was a uh, limitation like that. Oh, I think there's a bridge or some sort of plugin library
0: or something that you use to... There is a specific plugin. So if you go on NPM, you'll find it under v plugin view two. Right. Uh, and then just like I was talking with the Elm plugin, it's the same thing. You import create view plugin from v plugin view two, and then you invoke it as a function in the plugins array.
1: Yeah, here it is. Yeah, I found that there's a... GitHub issue from May, uh, where someone was trying
0: to do that. So yeah, if you're using Vue 2, try migrating. A, if you have a side project that's safe to migrate, try migrating over to VE. Um I've had decent experiences moving things from Webpack to VE. Uh It's mostly just a copy paste, because the view code all stays the same. It's just how you incorporate it into the application that changes. Uh, so it should be a smooth experience. Uh, if you do that, reach out. Let us know how it goes. I think my uh on on the note of Vite, though, my next most interesting technology is the VTest library, uh, which was created by Anthony Fu and Patak, uh, over from the, the V core team. There was a discussion internally, and I I believe the story goes that Evan Yu was like, you know, it'd be really cool if we had a test runner in V that was that was V native. Like not just just being able to support V, but actually something built for V. And within a week, Anthony Fu had set up VTest internally and was demoing it with a whole slew of features.
1: VTest, how do you spell uh,
0: that? V I T E S T.
1: Okay, so it is that. On a side note, I often wonder uh, if Anthony Fu gets many joke questions about if he works with somebody whose last name is Barr. Ha! <laughs> Only from people named Baz. Uh, <laughs> those are the things that pop into my head when I hear certain names.
0: But anyway. Yep. So vtest, if you go to v, vtest.dev, V-I-T-E-S-T.dev, you'll find it. Yep. It is still in development. It is not production ready. And they're very quick to say that. I mean, it's only been in development, I think, less than a month at this point. Um, but it supports the same kind of syntax as Jest, uh, has Chai assertions built in, Works with multi-threading. It's ES module first. And uh, offers TypeScript support, JSX support. Works with Vue, React, and Lit already. Um, And one of my favorite features uh, is you're working with Vite uh, itself, just like building an application. You change a file, it will hot reload that particular file. And your browser will just refetch it because you're using ES modules in the browser, rather than having to recompile the entire application like in Webpack vTest works the same way, so it is watching your code and for individual files. And if you change a given file, vTest will only run the test for that file. And so you can just leave the, the test watcher running all the time while you're working and not worry about it. So I am very excited about this project. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to test it too much myself. But I am looking for project where I can just stick it in and start writing some tests
1: so you're looking for time to test the testing
0: I need to test the tester
1: yes yeah I'm going through commits Uh, first commit was 19 days ago
0: yeah that sounds accurate
1: and if you look at the commits it's like there's a bunch every day a lot of them releases looks like he does a yeah yeah there's some heavy work going on there
0: yeah and there's there is a discord community um i don't remember if it's 100 public or you have to be a sponsor of either anthony or patak uh, but there is a discord community that you can join and the collaboration on there has been amazing to watch uh, i i had again i haven't had a huge opportunity But I can just see the discussions going back and forth, people going through the docs, people going through the test, the the test runner itself, and just trying to make this thing the best it can be. And especially given the short period of time, in 19 days, that's incredible that they have all of these features and it's in the state that it is. Uh, I've already seen a number of uh, developers, including some that we've had on the podcast, saying as soon as they have a moment, they're going to be switching all of their tests over to vTest, even though it's only in development at this point.
1: So it's based on
0: Jest, is that right? It uses the Jest syntax. Uh, Jest I believe syntax, it okay. is completely custom written. Uh, Jest is also working on a, a port to work with Vite, because uh, it is definitely reliant on old old ways of doing things uh, pre-Vite. Mm-hmm. But right. uh, this one is homegrown from the V ecosystem, specifically for this use case. Uh-huh. So yeah, those those are two that I'm very excited about. I think the Vite ecosystem in general, I feel, is going to continue to change how Vue is uh, incorporated into applications. I'm especially interested in using something like Vite on the front end with an Inertia application. Oh, um, there you go. Yeah, there, there's my... some nice. There's some nice integrations, like with Ruby, for example. There's a there's the Vite Ruby plugin from the creator of uh, Elas as well. And that's really nice to work with. I only set up like a demo application, but getting Vite incorporated into Ruby instead of using Webpacker is so nice to work with. And then throw inertia on top of it, I bet it would just be amazing. Um, and yeah, I I've think got there's a co- Laravel integrations too. Yeah, I've got a couple of inertia apps one
1: I've been doing a bunch of work on is just sort of sitting away for some feedback. And another one that I just spun up, but I was, uh, I would, I've been thinking that for a while too because it uses Webpack. Just be awesome to have one of those uh, out of the box with uh, with V. So yeah, I'm going to have to give that a try when I have some days off.
0: Yeah. So, Steve, what technologies are you interested in right now?
1: Uh, it's been interesting watching. I don't know. I mean, Inertia is the one I'm playing with right now. You know, when I have time and I've got some other side work that I do for other people, sort of takes my time. Um, it's been interesting watching all the tools coming out uh, that are, um, you know, sort of JavaScript renderers with varying layers on top for the front end, whether you're talking about, you know, Astro, whether you're talking about Isles. Um, I was recently listening to a podcast. By a recent guest, uh, Andrew Welch from DevMode FM, where they're talking about HTMX and Intercooler, um, and that you know is very sort of a competitor. The way he described it was this sort of a competitor of Alpine. There's some slight differences, but uh, they're sort of doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, a lot of those those tools that allow you to to mix and match and and sort of build build your own monolith, I guess is the <laughs> is sort of the uh, correct way to put it. Uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of what I've been keeping my eye on and, and listening to for sure.
0: Yeah, Intercooler looks really interesting. Looking through it, it looked like rather than interacting directly in the, the browser, like where Alpine is is setting actual JavaScript in the browser, Intercooler was, at least the part I was looking at, was sending HTTP requests just by setting attributes on buttons and things, so right you click you click on a button and it sends a request out to the server. And that looked like a really cool way to handle it, rather than having to set up your own fetch request and then posting it yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the documentation here. Yeah, there's, there's so many tools, so little time to play with them all. I guess. Oh yeah. You sort of got to figure, you know, what's going to work best for your situation and and play with that.
0: Absolutely. I I really like. Like you were saying, this idea of—I think you described it as—build your own monolith. Where in the in the olden days, <laughs> which weren't that long ago at all, in instances <laughs> today, but in the olden days, way back uh, when, way back, way back when, tomorrow or something, all of your logic, all of your your code was basically in the template. Like yep. I'm thinking of my own PHP experience. You wrote your PHP to render the template, and then you added the JavaScript in the template, and you added your styles potentially in the template. You know, even if you're broken out into into the style blocks and script blocks, everything was in that one in the in those template rendering files.
1: Hmm, you must have done it different than I did. At least you know, speaking from a Drupal standpoint, there was always the the attempt to or the idea to separate concerns, where we'd have I was at least in my my experience what I tried to do at least you know with PHP and the PHP template tools that were used up through Drupal 7 was always make sure I didn't, I had the minimal amount of code in the template itself. And Drupal would provide stuff like what were called pre-process functions, where you could manipulate all your variables before they actually got to the template. You know, and then you'd import your CSS files, but do your CSS outside of the template. So that's always been one of those things, you know, where I, uh, you know, try to keep things separate even back then. But that was one of the things with PHP and, and templates that people liked and you know, more I guess, professional developers sort of stumped their nose at is being able to combine PHP and HTML in one file and have it do its thing.
0: Yeah, that sounds accurate. I mean, I was not doing anything professional when I was playing with code this way. Mm-hmm. What I was and I could just be remembering things wrong as well, but I remember working in uh PHP BB. And there was a lot more. (laughs) That brings back memories. There was a lot less separation of concerns, let's say. Right, right. And I think there was still some pre-processing involved because I didn't write any JavaScript. And I'm very certain that I wasn't actually writing PHP half the time because it was doing the pre-processing. But all of the, the logic, all of the... I mean, maybe not all the CSS was there because CSS always lived in its own file, but so much was sitting in the template I felt when I was working in PHP BB. Mm-hmm. It, for me, as, as somebody who wasn't a professional at the time, it made it really easy to work with different parts of the application because it sure. was all right there. Sure. And I feel like in some ways we're going back to that concept where the separation of concerns is, they're different concerns. So we've got Tailwind and Utility CSS, or if you're using something like Uno CSS, you can just apply attributes and pretend like it's the pre-CSS days. And then you've yeah. got things like Alpine or yeah these other tools where you can just inject the JavaScript right into your template as well. Yeah, so that's I think. Interesting.
1: Well, there's, I mean, a couple of things there. One, the Alpine stuff that's pretty light. You know, that's you know it's sort of a sprinkling thing here. We're going to do this here, there, this here. And with uh, Tailwind, yeah, you're adding classes, but the class definitions are somewhere else. Okay, they're not it's not like you're defining your classes all within your template. You know, you've got your config files and all the CSS files that go along with Tailwind somewhere else. So yeah, I don't know if I'd call it combining or extrapolating. Well, that's Um, why
0: I was specifically thinking of something like Uno CSS, where it's the same idea at the end as Tailwind, where your config file is somewhere else. But with Uno, it feels like you're writing attributes on your HTML elements, which is kind of what, what's it called? Alpine is doing with JavaScript, where you add the the same kind of directives or bindings that we have in view to HTML elements. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like it's a lot more HTML-centered than we have been, I think is where I'm getting at. And that's something that I feel is more how things used to be done before tooling and standardization came over the last decade.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, if you think about it, everything's HTML-centered, because <laughs> that's what the browser reads. <laughs> no matter. No matter what you're doing behind the scenes, in the end, you got to have the HTML or the browser is just not going to read it.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'm just thinking if it feels like, especially with these tools, like, again, using Tailwind as the, or not Tailwind, um, Uno and Utility CSS as an example, and then Alpine, you can just have a straight .html file and then sprinkle on all of these attributes. Whereas with some of the tooling that we've seen uh, using Drupal as an example, you're generating a template. And then all of your logic is happening in PHP or in JavaScript if you're using it. Right. Um, same. Right. Same is true in React or View. Like we're using more or less HTML, but we're not really thinking in HTML. We're thinking in VDOM and we're thinking in view directives. So I feel like a lot of this tooling, while it still works with the tools that we like and use today, it's also allowing a lot more flexibility if you just want to render a .html file.
1: Right. That's the that's sort of the separation you're seeing. Where, you know, when the SPAs came along or when, you know, starting with Angular and, and going on, it was, okay, now we've got JavaScript, we can just generate all the edge HTML right here from JavaScript. And then you start seeing, then you got the SEO issues, obviously, with that approach, which can be handled in, in multiple ways with pre-rendering or, you know, so on. But now it's like, what was sort of swung back to is, okay... Here's your HTML. Let's add a little bit of JavaScript on top of that. So you don't need a full-on library. You know, there's people that are like minimum, minimal the minimal JavaScript is possible. There's other people who like to work more in JavaScript and generate HTML that way. So yeah, there's there, there's a whole spectrum of of tools and approaches. And everybody thinks theirs is the best and the cleanest.
0: <laughs> Wait till I release my new framework. you have never <laughs> right. seen anything as clean as that. <laughs> uh, it's called blankpage.js. <laughs> No. I mean, I really like Al- both Alpine and Tailwind for in general. But one of the specific uses I found initially was I had to render an HTML page with some minor interactions, just like opening and closing accordions, minor stuff like that. But I had to render that page in a different application. And we had gone back and forth. Am I just going to send you JSON and you're going to render it, or are we going to render it for you? We decided to render it because it was our piece of application. We wanted to integrate our app into theirs. And we wanted it to look a certain way. So rather than force them to, to build their app to our spec, we just sent them HTML with CSS and JavaScript. And I was, I'm, sorry, I was sending that from uh, Java backend in this case. And I didn't want to integrate all of the front end tooling that we have to deal with just for a single page, like a single static page with just minor interaction. So it was really easy to sprinkle on utility CSS and utility JavaScript, basically, with Alpine and just ship that over Felt like it was a really nice development experience and a really easy way to integrate our apps.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. And and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching.
1: Well, then the other interesting thing is the approach and you know, in terms of specifications and additions to the standards, HTML tends to move much slower than JavaScript and, and so on. And so but what you see is new stuff being added and people wanting to add new stuff to HTML so you don't have to do it in JavaScript. So one example that I've seen out there is you know an accordion type of feature to HTML. So you could just have an HTML tag accordion and then, you know, your tags in there appropriately and then the browser handles it. And, you know, obviously with any request to add something to the base like that, there's all kinds of different use cases and you got to figure out how to do it best and so on. So there's a lot of intricacy and a lot of thought involved, but that's what people seem to want. And, And it makes sense because then right out of the box, you've already got everything you need, just do this and this and this, you don't have to import a bunch of JavaScript and slow your site down. So that's easier for everybody, but it's not, hey, let's slap in an accordion tag, I'll we'll do this and this, hey, we're good to go. <laughs> right. You've got cases at the wazoo that you gotta consider and think about. And so it takes time and work, but that's you see that a lot to add stuff to the browser. And really all it does is sh- shift the work from one group to the other. <laughs> it's oh, absolutely. It shifts it from the, the web developers and the people writing the code to the people writing code for the browsers and having them have to handle not only their use case, but a use case for a bazillion other people. So,
0: And then we get angry when they don't implement it at the right speed or right. in the right way that we want. Right? Yeah, It's all a mess. Speaking of just slapping in an accordion tag into your browser, how do you feel about web components going forward into 2022? I feel like 2021 has been a pretty decent year for them, all things considered. I know the latest version of Lit came out, which is fully built on web components and seems uh-huh. really nice. They've got, I think they even have some server-side rendering support in lit, not web components themselves. Uh-huh. Vue now supports creating web components just with view, writing standard Vue code, which is pretty nice. I know Svelte does the same thing. I think React in React 18 is going to be supporting it too. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. It just seems like web components are getting a little more attention than they had been from the big frameworks, not just side projects like ionic or i know ionic is a big project but it's not angular itself it's a project within angular but now the core javascript frameworks are targeting web components not necessarily as the recommendation but as an option which i think is interesting what do you think about it
1: well i mean the idea is similar to what we're talking about for it's abstraction so that sort of enforcing the dry don't repeat yourself so you can write something in one place that allows that allows you to reuse it across multiple what do we call them sites or applications, however you want to do it. So I'm um, gonna have to claim ignorance in that I haven't followed this very closely. I hear people talking about them, but they don't seem to be sort of a dominant thing, at least in you know the tech that I listen to and pay attention to. Doesn't mean I'm not missing it for sure, but uh, I like the uh, the idea. To me, it's I mean, it's it's just taking what we already know from JavaScript frameworks and extracting it. Because what are you doing? You're creating a component, an HTML element that you can use in other places, right? You know, it's like if you're in a view app, you write a component, you know, that has such a name, and then you can reuse it and call it from various places in your application. So the same, I think, just extract it outside of, of your app.
0: Yeah. And I, I think there's some interest specifically because these components can be used outside of a respective front-end framework. So if I'm working on a team that has a legacy application that was built in Rails, we've got a new application that's all server-side rendering using, I don't know, React or Vue or something, and we've got other other cases where we need to render specific HTML, I could just write a single web component and it works in everything. There, There's definitely some appeal there.
1: Now, have you uh, actually written some and used some?
0: I have. At work, I wrote a very basic web component. You know, you know that concept of like a click outside, where you have a, a dropdown or a modal or something, and you when you click outside, close it. Uh-huh. I put together a basic web component for that. All it does is add event listeners. Like it's not changing the DOM directly itself; uh, it just renders whatever you give it. Uh-huh. But it's it wasn't bad. Like it was nice to work with something simple like that. Also, if you if you render it in a browser that doesn't support web components, it's not like it's going to break the experience. And I think that's one of the, the hardest things and something we're moving past finally is all of the modern browsers support web components. And at this point, Microsoft is deprecating Internet Explorer, so we don't need to think about that nearly as much. That use case of what happens if the web component can't render. That said, there are still cases where JavaScript doesn't work. So you do need to think about it still. Just I don't think it's as much of a blocker as it used to be.
1: So tell me what's involved in writing a web component. Just, just I'm always thinking in the nitty-gritty details of how I... I'm going to write a web component? I mean, what files do you create, and then what do you do with them, or where do you stick them?
0: So we're a view podcast, so I'll describe it from the view perspective. The first thing you would do is you'd write your standard .view file. So let's let's say you're just creating an input, a special input field that's going to be a web component. So you create your file, you can name it .view, and then you just you write it as normal. There's some special things to keep in mind. Uh, for example, web components and HTML elements in general can't take complex objects like arrays and objects as attributes. Whereas in Vue, you can. You can just do dot user equals user, right? And you get the entire user object. You oh, can't right. Do that. You can't do that in HTML. It's
1: got to so, be like uh, a single scalar type variable.
0: Yeah, it's gonna, you're going to have to use the primitives like string or number right. or boolean or something like that. Or you can, from JavaScript, apply things as properties. So if you do that, Vue will translate it into your special prop that you set in your defined props. So if you need to need to have a user object and you really don't want to break it down into like name, email, something like that in the HTML, you can then target it with like uh, document.query selector, whatever the tag is, dot add property, I think. I haven't I don't do it that much. And then just set what that property is supposed to be. So you can pass an object in at that level, but you can't uh-huh. do it within the HTML template.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And then in your JavaScript, you import that view component just like you normally would. And then there is a special... Uh, syntax that Vue provides. Give me one second. I will make sure I have it for you. It is define custom element. So Vue, Vue exposes a function, define custom element, and then you can wrap your, your component that you've created in define custom element. And then you have to call custom elements define. That is a browser API. It's not coming from Vue. Mm. But when you run custom elements define, you give it a tag. So in our name, it could be like custom dash input or something like that. And then you pass in the result of define custom element. And that sets it in the DOM so that you can then render it properly. If you were going to write this without view, you can do it. Custom web components are basically just a class. So JavaScript class that extends HTML element or whatever kind of element that you're wanting to extend. And then you just add the same basic thing that you have in view with like on mount or on dismount, they just call them different things. So it's, I think in the standard syntax would be like a connected callback or a disconnected callback or something like that, but it's the same basic idea. And then you have access to that element, and you can set things on its inner HTML. You can set uh, DOM listeners, which is what I've done, and you, you can emit custom events just like you normally would inside of Vue. So does that sit that sits in your view app, like with the rest of your
1: components? You, I mean, I suppose it's up to you as to where you place it or, yeah, or how you do it.
0: Yeah. And Vue has some special flags that you can set on it. So if you want it to render it differently, because it is a custom element, you can name it like, in our example, it'd be custom input.ce for custom element mm-hmm. uh, view. Or you can flag that all of your view components are just going to be web components in your uh, configuration. So if you're using Vite, you could just set that at a global level. And you will know that all of your components are supposed to be uh, web components.
1: Right, okay, so the idea though is that a web component can be shared across applications, right? Yes. Okay, so if you're writing that in a Vue app, how is that shared to other applications?
0: So if you are writing a web component using Vue, you can then export that library of built web components, and then you can import it into whatever you need. So mm-hmm. if you're using React, for example, but you want to use certain Vue components that your team has built as this mm-hmm. global library, right? you can just You'd have to follow the React spec for how to import them properly and make sure they get registered in the browser. Mm-hmm. But all you'd have to do is in- import the the required files because you by declaring the uh, custom element.define, then that is available in the browser. So in React at that point, if in your JSX you put that special tag, our, our custom dash input,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it will, React isn't going to care. It doesn't know what it is necessarily, mm-hmm. but it should just render that as is because it knows it's not a React component, it looks like HTML. So it's just gonna put it out onto the page. Mm -hmm. And then in the browser, because it knows what web component to render in relation to that tag, it will then spin up the the web component for you.
1: Can you pass options or props into an implementation of a web component?
0: Yes. You just can't pass in the the, like arrays or symbols or anything fancy. It's gotta be single value variables. Yeah. And maybe in React 18, there's gonna be better support for that. Uh, where you could pass in something more complex and it will just translate it into properties for you. But I don't think that's in place at the moment. Mm-hmm. I'll include a link to the blog post I wrote on building web components with Vue 3.2, just for our listeners to have access to that. One of the examples, this isn't using Vue, but one of the examples of a web component library that I really like is called shoelace.style. And it is a series of web components that you can just bring into any application. And they're, they're kind of pre-styled. It looks kind of like Bootstrap to an extent, and there's integrations with React View and Angular, or you can bring it in without those. But it just so- provides some predetermined components that you can just drop in. They have attributes that you can set and they look nice. Like I feel like this is a good use case for web components if it's something that fits your website style.
1: Hmm. Yet another like component it, library.
0: Yeah, yet another component library. <laughs> but you can but it's the it's the only one you need because it works across all frameworks.
1: Right. Hmm, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And speaking of things working across frameworks, I think the last technology that I'm really interested in is remix.run. Have you, are you aware of what that is, Steve? I think you are.
1: Yeah, I'm aware of what it is. I'm just, sometimes I think about food when I hear it, but I guess it depends on how hungry I am at the time. But uh,
0: I mean, that's fair. It's (laughs) always good to eat and not code on an empty stomach. So for those who aren't aware, remix is developed by Ryan Florence and Michael Jackson, who are the creators of React Router. And this is a framework that they describe as being a full-stack web framework. They do not self-describe as a React framework. It just happens to use React at the moment. Its goal is to get back to using the platform rather than having abstraction upon abstraction to the point that we don't actually know how browsers work. From listening to what they've talked about, they feel very frustrated that we aren't using the tools that are provided to us in the browser and in the HTTP spec to do things anymore. Uh, One of the big examples they use is forms, where again, back in the olden days, uh, (laughs) when you create a form, you defined whether it did a GET or a POST request. And when that form was submitted, it would send that request to your server, the server would return a brand new page that you would go to. So rather than handling form inputs and submissions and state and everything in your JavaScript, the browser just did all of it for you. And that's kind of cool that you don't have to think about these things. Uh, But one of the things they noticed as they were giving trainings on React is that developers didn't know that form, for example, had a default that actually was useful. They were seeing developers who were getting trained and seeing, oh, okay, I'm creating a form, so I have to prevent default. I don't know why. I guess I just need to prevent default. So the goal of Remix is to get back to the, the, the core of what the web platform is and use the actual spec that it provides to do all of the things that we need today. One of the cool things is because it uses the, the default get and post idea of uh, forms, for example, it doesn't have an exposed API necessarily. You're just writing pages. Again, this is kind of going back to how things used to be with PHP, where you just write a page, that page handles what you do when there's a get request and what you do when there's a post request. And you do the same thing. It's all in JavaScript. And in this case, it's using React as the front end. But it's back to instead of separation of concerns being the API is over there and the UI is over here, it's separation of concerns. If you're editing a post, for example, all of that code needs to belong here because that's where I'm concerned about it. The other big benefit is the way they do the rendering is it works even if JavaScript doesn't because they're just using the basic HTML. So if you have a place with either low latency or, or, sorry, high latency, or no JavaScript is enabled, you should still be able to use the site because you're just using the basic HTTP and HTML specs. And the reason I'm bringing this up on a Vue podcast is there's been multiple comments from the team, including, uh, I believe, Ryan Florence and Kent C. Dodds saying that Remix is going to support other frameworks in the future. I believe Ryan showed a picture of the the Remix repository when I asked about this. He was like, so here's all of our code. There's only one folder that says React. The React amount of our application is actually pretty small, and it can be replaced. I saw another person, I can't remember the name, so I apologize, but I saw somebody experimenting with returning uh, hydrated Svelte from Remix into the browser today without having to change how things are configured. And it was just really cool to see see this experimentation that's happening, and that this this full-stack framework is not tying itself so strongly to one front-end, it's going to be available to us Vue developers as well if we want to use our framework of choice.
1: You know, the, one of the things that I, I was just looking through the the Remix site and speaking for myself, uh, I think one of the things most attractive about it is their tutorial is a jokes app. Looks like there's a video that Kent C. Dodge walks you through creating a jokes app with Remix. So that alone makes it very attractive.
0: I'll say their docs are also very punny on themselves. Who uh, Are they? There's at least, Yeah. So for a bit on Twitter after they went open source, people were a little concerned because there was this joke about, we use let instead of const because it's three letters instead of five. Uh, <laughs> that you can use what you want. There was another, I can't remember where, what it was exactly, but you know, as often happens in full-stack frameworks, uh, there was a, an example of how you could write a blog with this. Of course. And they, they intentionally left a typo in something as, as they were talking about they needed to go back and edit. So there was just this typo in the middle of the docs, it's like they're great or something like that where they left out the apostrophe and it was it was just fun and you could tell because of the context that it was done intentionally it wasn't a oops that's funny and ha maybe we should leave it it was it it felt very authentic that it was supposed to be there so i i feel like they're having fun while working on this it's not just oh this is the way things should be follow us they're they're really putting their their heart and soul into this kind of project.
1: Well, you're talking about that, the let versus const. To me, that's almost like a tabs versus spaces debate anymore. It's like, oh, you know, yeah. it's like the dogma, <laughs> one versus the other. We were recording JavaScript yes, JavaScript Jabber yesterday, and a couple of the people got on like this five-minute thing about const versus let. And, okay, sounds good. Thanks.
0: <laughs> yep. Quick, Steve, do you prefer tabs, spaces, or semicolons?
1: Well, that's a non-sequitur. I mean... <laughs> I mean, semicolons are separate from tabs or spaces. I'm a spaces guy myself, and I prefer to use semicolons for purposes of clarity. I do recall one time hearing an interview with Douglas Crockford. I believe it was Douglas Crockford, old-time JavaScript guru, who talked about there's a good reason to use semicolons because sometimes a compiler might not handle things correctly without a definite end, and I don't remember the details. But anyway, spaces and semicolons, yes.
0: I had seen at least one joke, I think, where somebody had replaced all of the spaces with semicolons, and they they had shown what it would look like if you were using semicolons to do tabbing. It was it was horrifying. <laughs> horrifying.
1: That's uh, that sounds quite extreme.
0: It was tabifying. What was I going to say? Yeah, I agree. the The debate is something to debate about. It's not something that's really worth spending energy on, which is why we're spending energy on it instead of you. Hmm. Yeah. So those are the technologies that I'm really interested in going into 2022. I really look forward to see what happens in the Vite world. Really excited to see Remix go cross-platform. Excited about Web Components. And I'm also excited to see where the, the splashes of JavaScript go, like you were talking about, Steve.
1: Okay, yeah, zero. yeah, that's certainly interesting. I, you know, I've, for so long, you know, after coming to the front end side, I've always been so focused on, you know, first thing that always comes to mind with stuff like this. Well, how do you make API calls and how do you get data to your front end from the server and and so on? But yeah, there's certainly a number of things that you don't need to do that. You know, we hey, I want to show this and this and maybe move this around and hide or show this and that kind of stuff. That that certainly uh, would work well.
0: I remember being so confused um, when I was starting with C sharp. Uh, I think I was just doing like an ASP.NET app and I had integrated Knockout into it and I had managed to get data from the c layer into the browser and I'd loaded it. And I was just like, okay, now how do I get it back? <laughs> how, do, how do I get it back into the c And And the person I was working with was like, yeah, don't worry about that right now. It's, you're doing great. You got it into the browser. That's wonderful.
1: Take the rest of the day off.
0: Take Yeah, take the day off. You're doing fine. It was <laughs> And it's five I, o'clock. I am looking forward to the the fact that we're moving more and more to the point where things are feeling more seamless, uh, whether that's the Fetch API is just really easy to work with, or you're using GraphQL, or you're using something like Remix where the data is just there for you. seems really nice. Do you have any final points you'd like to talk about, Steve? Any other technologies?
1: Uh, nope, not at the moment. I think we've addressed any of the, the relevant stuff, at least in my world, let's put it that way. I'm fortunately mired down in Vue 2 for a lot of my stuff right now so any chances to get into v3 and some of these other technologies are are somewhat limited. but got to focus on what pays the bills you know
0: that makes sense oh here's a prediction for 2022 it's 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 going on a limb but i bet view 3 is going to become the latest branch on npm in 2022
1: i don't know man you're sort of going out on a limb there
0: i just have this feeling i i think it'll stop being next it's going to be latest Uh, by the end of 2022, but we'll see at this point. Do we, do we want to do picks, Steve? We've, we've kind of picked things as we went.
1: Oh, come on. I always have picks to do.
2: All right. Let's do picks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. This is the part of the show where we share things we like with the community that are
0: not necessarily programming-related. Steve, what is your pick?
1: So speaking, uh, the first pick is developer-related. And I picked it on JavaScript Java yesterday, but I thought it's sort of interesting. In that, you know, developers, a lot of times, you'll hear the, even the most seasoned pros talk about when when they don't know how to do something. i got to do this task. Well, darn it, I can't remember how to do it. And so what's the first thing you do? You sort of Google it, right? And so I found this, came across this blog post on Hacker News by a developer named Sophie Koonin, K-O-O-N-I-N, she has a site at localghost.dev. And she, for a week, she recorded everything that she Googled as a professional software engineer. That's it's from a few years ago, 2019. But it's just funny to see the the different things that she Googled a lot. She's obviously writing React using Apollo. She's got one, one little funny thing is uh, she was doing some Googling on cores, cross-origin re, uh, resources. And while she... <laughs> While she uh, did that, she started coming across, there's a band, an Irish band called The Core, C-O-R-R-S. Um, I personally like them. I have a few songs of theirs that I listened to to this day. And so she shows this uh, meme that she generated with cores and the cores. So it's pretty funny. Anyway, I'll put the uh, the link in the show notes, just sort of entertaining to read. And then for the the jokes of the day, I know this is the highlight for many people that listen to this blog. Sort of. So my doctor, you know, if you ever heard Rodney Dangerfield talk about uh, his doctor, Dr. Vinny Boombach, I told him I wanted to quit aging and gave me a gun, that type of thing. You know, my doctor sometimes isn't always the best either. One time I went to him and, and uh, I said, man, I broke my arm in three places. And he said, well, don't go to those places. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, delayed drum joke there. And then another time we were talking about a medical procedure he was going to be doing here at a hospital and we were talking about it. And I said, you know, well, how often do people die during this procedure? And he said, just once. So anyway, those are my picks. Oh, and also one pick we talked about at the beginning, I'll put a link in the show notes for the the how you doing commercial, then the follow up with the big text in there. Classics, true classics of commercial history.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Steve. My pick today is, it is going to be another technology. I've been playing with Gitpod over the last week. A number of podcasts came out talking about it, so I decided to give it a shot. Gitpod is a cloud environment for doing web development. So if you want to spin up either a tool that you've never used before, a language that you want to try out, or your own personal site, uh, takes either GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, and it will create the environment for you run the initialization so that by the time the, the browser actually loads, you're already ready to go and your local instance is running. It then provides you with a URL. It'll it'll still show in the, the browser localhost 3000, but if you click on it, it'll open up a custom URL that you can choose to make public or private. So if you're working on this live and you want somebody to see the changes you're making, it will be streamed across the web to them like that. And the browser interface right now is using VS Code. You can install VS Code plugins, you can change your interface like you normally would, use the extensions that you're familiar with, but they're also testing integration with JetBrains IDEs as well. So you prefer something like IntelliJ or WebStorm or something like that. You'll be able to integrate that in your browser. And to top it all off, if you really don't wanna work in the browser, but you like the idea of working in the cloud, you can uh, do basically the same thing as SSH, where if you SSH into something from VS Code, you can load up those files. It's the same idea. You can access the Git pod stuff locally, and then it'll still be happening in the cloud and you'll still have that link and everything. So you don't need to worry about configuring your local environment if you want to contribute to a project in a language you're not as familiar with or you don't want to work on long term. Um, another example that they give is if you're doing uh, pull requests then you can spin up a specific workspace for that pull request rather than having to get stash your current work and try and jump between branches. So that's really cool.
1: You know, now that you mentioned that, there was one technology that I was going to mention and we could probably cover it later is because it's still in beta and I don't have access Is Copilot from Uh, GitHub. You know, that's uh, I've heard other people talk about it extensively and and how it auto-suggests like functions for you and you know just tons of suggestions and got some kind of, that's an interesting thing to to watch it well i know there's there was uh, certainly controversy around it and that should good have be using stuff from everybody's repositories for for somebody else and is it going to take people's jobs and that kind of stuff but for those who have used it it seems to be uh, once you get used to it and integrated it, it's it's a quite useful tool
0: i i have been mostly satisfied using copilot
1: oh but, you've, uh, you've you're in the beta
0: I'm in the beta. I Ooh. I got it near the beginning. I thought I was surprised people hadn't gotten in yet. You must yeah, be extra special. It's really nice to work with. That said, it does have some some hiccups. At least at the beginning, it didn't have as much context for Vue over React. So if I was trying to do something with, uh, for example, a ref for a a, custo- a composable in Vue three, it would try to treat it like a use state call in React and expect it to return an array. So there were some little things like that working. That's called framework bias. That's not fair. Yeah. Come on, GitHub. Don't make (laughs) me use React. Let me use what I want. (laughs) Uh, But overall, it's been really nice, and it's gotten better over time. Uh, Occasionally, it will get into some very interesting loops uh, where I think uh, Scott Talinsky has put out some pictures on Twitter about it where it'll think you're importing... You'll you'll start typing an import for one thing, and it'll import, like, 50 others that aren't actually part of your project <laughs> because it's seen something like this before and all we can hope is that nobody's actually writing code that way uh, <laughs> but in general it's been nice it it does feel like the the way i've described it before is it feels like somebody is is doing a, a pair programming session with you and they're just kind of throwing all the ideas in their head at you at once so you start writing a function's like hey you could do it this way You you keep going and they might change their mind and be like, no, do it this other way instead, which as, as an Elm developer, it can be interesting because the Elm compiler is also in that sense. So it's like, you've got two people on your shoulder. One's the, just try everything. And the Elm compiler is being like, yeah, but that doesn't work. It's been really nice to work with across languages. I've used it in Elm, JavaScript, PHP, Rails. So it, it works really nicely. I haven't run into any major issues with it, except when it gets confused like between reactor view or when i'm writing an elm it'll sometimes suggest haskell code but otherwise it's been fine and i like how it's it's context aware so as you keep writing your file or your application github copilot will also know what's going on in your, in the rest of your code base and it will start making accurate suggestions based on what's actually available in in the uh, in the context of that function or something so yeah, yeah. go try out yeah. github copilot if you have it if not sign up for the beta
1: yeah, I didn't realize you could sign up. I thought it was just people like GitHub stars or whatever. Maybe those are the very first people and then
0: maybe. Yeah, if you sign up for it, you should get access to it at some point. I don't know exactly what that's looking like, but definitely give it a shot when you can. Cool. I think that wraps up our show today. Hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Uh, you can find more of us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsey K. Wardell and Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you again next week. And if this comes out still
2: in 2021, have a great 2022. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.